Along a road not built by man, there winds a silent caravan of camel clouds whose humped gray backs are weighted down with heavy packs of long-awaited precious rain to make the old earth young again and dress her shabby fields and hills in green grass silk with wild flower frills. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of the seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of grain rain, or koku. Spanning from April 20th to May 5th, this season is when we expect the nourishing rain that will help the crops to grow. Reeds are beginning to sprout, peonies are blooming, and birds are shaking off the last of the cold weather from their wings. The season of grain rain is preceded by the mini-season clear and bright, and followed by the mini-season beginning of summer. This is the last true cool spring season before the warmer summer days begin. And you know, we've come another year around the sun in a matter of speaking. Our last episode in March was our 12th, the completion of a year looking at the 24 mini-seasons of Japan, also known as Seki. I distinctly remember a year ago when we started talking about our first episode. We debated about which mini-season we would begin the podcast on. After assessing what it would take to put an episode together and the time frame, we opted to begin with the mini-season Clear and Bright on April 4th, 2020. We chose that mini-season because we thought the name Clear and Bright was an auspicious sounding way to begin. Ah yes, that's right. We really didn't know what we would be in for, so we tried to, from the very beginning, have a hopeful message. Exactly. But you know, it just so happened that because we chose this mini-season to start, all the mini-seasons we've covered since fall within the middle of the month, usually spanning from the 4th or 5th to the 18th of the month or so. In Japan, the mini-seasons falling within the middle of the month are referred to as setsu. That's right! Interestingly, although the word setsu can be generically translated as season or time, it's also used to describe a node or notch, for example on a piece of bamboo. Therefore, I think there's this innate sense of the word connecting two separate pieces. Setsu served as a bridge between perhaps the central part, the chu, which ironically are the beginning and end, to the month. We'll talk about this a little later in the episode. But lots of important things seem to happen in the last week of one month and the first of the next. But it's worth remembering that the 24 seki, the 24 mini-seasons, can still be thought of as being expressed within the larger four seasons. And each of the four seasons has three chu seasons and three setsu seasons, arranged alternatively. For example, the clear and bright season is the third setsu of the spring season. And now, with grain rain, we are entering the third Chu season of spring. 
Whether Chu or Setsu, there's always something interesting happening during each mini-season. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, and in our lives as we begin our passage into this special period. As we anticipate the abundance of spring as it makes its way for summer, fresh beginnings await us. Let's set out. When April steps aside for May, like diamonds, all the raindrops glisten. Fresh violets open every day. To some new bird, each hour we listen. The rain of April and May is not a sad rain. It is a life-giving rain after the long and cold winter. This is most certainly the April showers brings May flowers kind of rain. After all, hope has been rekindled. The dry seasons of life did not last. The spring rains have come again, says Sarah Ban Brethnach. Chinese poet Du Fu had a beautiful poem about spring rain. He wrote, My heart is in a world of water and crystal. My clothes are damp in this spring rain. And you know, for all our gardeners out there, spring rain is vital for plant development. If you've planted some seeds or seedlings, it's important to make sure they are well watered, especially during their first year if they are a shrub or tree. This will only reward you in the long run. But you know, there are more plants than just the garden variety. Those that are a bit more temporal. Those that have restrained cultivation. They too benefit from the rains of spring, yet seemingly leave just before the party of summer gets started. I'm talking about sansai, or wild mountain vegetables. At this time of year throughout fields and forests in the temperate northern hemisphere, you may see fresh young vegetation thriving. Some of it may even be edible. Alexis and I sat down with Winifred Bird, author of the newly published Eating Wild Japan, to learn more about these effervescent elements of spring. As we mentioned in our last episode, we have a special guest joining us for this episode. That's right. We're speaking with Winifred Bird, author of Eating Wild Japan, tracking the culture of foraged foods with a guide to plants and recipes, published by Stonebridge Press. Winifred, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's jump right into it. First, I want to say that I love your book. I think that this is a book that many of our regular listeners will love as well. At the very beginning of the introduction, you begin with a poem from the Hyakunin Ishu. For you, beloved, I walk in the fields of springtime, picking wild greens as snowflakes fall and fall on the sleeves of my kimono. These wild greens are just what your book is about, and from that very first page, I knew this was a book aimed straight from my heart. So Winifred, what led you to writing Eating Wild Japan? I guess I'd have to start with uh, way back in my childhood, I have always loved to cook. My mom taught me how to cook from the time I was a really small child. She always let me help in the kitchen. Every summer she would take us, uh, me and, and later my younger sister, to go pick blackberries in the public city parks. Uh, and then we would make blackberry pie. So that was just one of my favorite memories growing up. And then fast forward, uh, about 20 years, I was living in Japan 
mostly in rural areas and small towns, I encountered the wonderful culture of foraging and cooking with wild edible plants that exists in Japan, um, even today that has existed throughout their history and, and really continues to be a strong part of Japanese culture. So when I moved back to the United States, I wanted to somehow share my experiences. I had been working as an environmental journalist but for years while I was in Japan, but I wanted to somehow bring together everything I had experienced living there um, in a kind of a more holistic way that brought together the food and nature and culture and um, focusing on edible wild plants just seemed like the perfect way to do that. We've discussed picking wild blackberries on season by season. I'm also from the Bay Area. Alexis grew up really close by, and as a fellow Bay Area native, I think I've felt at least a little as you did, that living more closely with nature and harvesting wild food would be so great, but I really don't know where to begin. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners who might want to get into foraging for themselves? Is there a best time to start? You can forage any time of year, even in the middle of winter, but you have to be pretty hardcore to be a winter forager somewhere like Illinois. So I would say that spring is a really excellent time to get started. There's just so much out there wherever you are. It's the spring season now, and some people may be eager to give foraging a try. You talk about warabi in your book, but doesn't it also grow here in the United States? So warabi... um is called bracken or bracken fern in English. Um, it's a plant that grows really all around the world. It's most one of the most widespread wild plants in the world, and it grows all over Japan as well. And um, the shoots are eaten uh, starting in April. It really depends where you are, but April, May, um, the shoots come up and they're called fiddleheads. They don't really look like fiddleheads in this case. They're kind of curly looking. Um, they come up on a shoot like an asparagus and then it branches into like three um, shoots at the top with these kind of curly ends on them. It's a really classic um, sansai to enjoy in Japan. You might find it like on a bowl of soba noodles in broth with like some, some sansai on top. You'll probably have a, a couple warabi in there on top. And you have included a recipe in the book, too. I should say just a word of warning in the United States. Um, health authorities do not recommend that you eat warabi because some scientific studies have linked um, eating them in animal studies with um, cancers and other problems. Um, however, there's also evidence that if you process them properly, as they do in Japan, um, by soaking them in warm water, hot water, with baking soda or ash, which are alkalized, that removes a lot of the toxic compounds. And it's, I would say it's quite safe to eat in moderation once a year in season. Um, so I feel comfortable eating them. Um, you uh, Listeners will have to make their own decision about that. All right, so that was our PSA. But anyhow, so they're a really classic um, spring sansai. Um, but to me, they're, they're even more interesting um, kind of as a symbol of how edible wild plants have had a dual role in Japanese culture as luxury 
foods as well as famine foods. Mm. Um, I traveled to a place in Iwate Prefecture called Nishiwagamachi, um, deep in the mountains in northern Japan, um, where they have a very strong culture of sansai. Of course, they do eat and preserve the shoots, but even more importantly, they would eat the rhizomes, which are kind of like the, the underground um, stems of warabi bracken. Um, and they would dig these up in the fall. Uh, they were extremely abundant in the beech forests of this area, and they're still fairly abundant. And they would kind of beat them and soak them in water and then settle out the starch that they would obtain in that way to kind of process them into both a fine white starch that was a kind of a luxury item. It was used to make what's called warabi mochi, which many listeners may have had the pleasure of tasting. I love warabi mochi. It's like this kind of jelly, these like bouncy jelly-like balls, <laughs> which you guys, have Have you guys tried them? Yes, I, I have had warabi mochi. Very mild flavor. Yeah, I think I've had them a few times. Very light and wiggly. Yes. <laughs> well, true warabi mochi is made from 100% um, warabi starch. Um, and it's very, very rare. You really can't preserve it. So most of what you will find in the store is made from other types of much cheaper starch. Warabi, real warabi starch is very expensive. And you will really only find it in Kyoto or a handful of other places, um, one of them being uh, Nishiwagamachi, where they're kind of uh, have revived the production of these, these sweets. They're an ancient um, treat that was enjoyed by royalty in the 1500s and interesting um, so they have a, a long and interesting history they appear in poetry and ancient cookbooks and things like that now meanwhile on the other hand this starch was also used in mountain communities such as Nishiwagamachi as a famine food like this kind of gluey porridge they would make out of it and and they would use kind of the lower grade starch that had maybe like some, some of the uh, debris, plant debris still mixed in with it. So the finer starch was sent off as a, a cash product, uh, you know, like a cash crop to sell. And the, the lower grade starch was kept at home to be eaten when there wasn't enough rice or other grains, which was like all the time. I mean, it was just so hard to survive solely on agricultural products in places like that before crop breeding before these kind of newer varieties of rice were developed that are cold hardy and um, are able to grow in places like that. So there were just constantly famines and food shortages um, in colder parts of Japan um, throughout history. Um, so what people did was they would rely more on wild foods during those times, uh, including the, the warabi starch. Um, and yeah, they would sometimes mix it with like acorns or tochimochi, which is horse chestnuts and, and other, other kinds of um, uh, more reliable native plants. Um, so I just, yeah, I just found it really fascinating that, that those two different roles had kind of developed um, throughout history um, for, for wild edible plants in Japan, um, both of them kind of in relation to agriculture, sansai or something special because they're not grown in farm fields, so, so they're a luxury food for that reason. Um, but they're also something that represents the inability to successfully be a farmer and, and grow rice. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's fascinating. You have an anecdote, I think it's in chapter three, where you're talking about the warabi starch, and you asked the question, why is it so special? Is it the flavor? Is it the texture? And the answer was, it's really the rarity factor, and people are willing to pay more because it's so rare and ancient. And that was a really interesting thing to me. You also share some poetry about warabi mochi. I was wondering if you could share something about how and why you chose to include poetry in the book. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think the truth about this project is that I love plants, but I'm really interested in people. I love um, <laughs> to get to know different people, um, to get try to get to know people from the past through their poetry and their writing. I love to read. So when I started to discover how much beautiful poetry and literature there was referring to Sansai and how important these plants have been for really thousands of years in Japanese culture. Um, I really wanted to bring that into the book, especially because a poem like that, that one that Kit read at the beginning of the book, I mean, it's by an emperor in the eighth century, I think. And yet the human connection that we're able to feel is just so direct and so real of going out to the fields at the end of winter to pick something special for a person who you love. It just really spoke to me as food being a way to connect with other people. It's something that ties people together, um, ties people together now in the present, ties people together through history, um, connects us to the landscape as well and to other non-human um, creatures in the landscape. Um, so yeah, I, th I thought the poetry was really a, a good way to kind of touch on that and, and get into that aspect of, of Sansai. You talk about humans' role in the landscape and environment, and in particular these sort of border areas between cultivated and wild, which are called satoyama in Japan. I think this is key in understanding the world of Sansai. Can you share with us a bit more about them? So satoyama refers, has again kind of a narrow definition and a broad definition, but the narrow definition refers to woodlands, that were traditionally around surrounding villages that were not entirely wilderness and not entirely tree farms, but kind of a middle ground, a natural forest that I write, as I write in the book, that was has been shaped by human use. For example, um, these woodlands were up, the trees would be coppiced for um, charcoal production and the fallen branches would be gathered for kindling and people would go into them to um, to harvest sansai uh, and other other plants. Um, they would um, cut the, the undergrowth to use as a kind of um, green fertilizer for their um, farm fields. So they were used in many different ways and that kind of shaped the ecology of these these woodlands um, and and they, it even it kind of um, increased the overall diversity of the landscape because you had the more fully wild, untouched, never really untouched, but more untouched forests deeper in the mountains. And then you had the Satoyama, which became habitats for different kinds of species because they were managed in a different way. And then you had the more fully managed farmland right 
in the village. Um, so it was kind of like this mosaic of different habitats that supported a great deal of biodiversity. And that kind of landscape was really lost with modernization after World War II. So there's been a lot of um, focus recently on, on how to restore it, um, which is it's really difficult because it is so deeply tied into how people live and, <laughs> and how society functions. And it, it's, it's really hard to revert the ecosystem, the natural landscape without fundamentally changing the way that the society and the economy functions. There's a lot more to discover on Satoyama in the book, so listeners, definitely be sure to check it out. Unfortunately, I believe we're running out of time, but as this podcast is all about nature and seasonality expressed through art, we couldn't let you leave without you reading us a poem or two. And I think you prepared something for us. Why don't I read this funny poem? This is like a satirical poem from 1545. So I'll read the little introduction to the poem as well. So the poet priest Soboku ate warabi mochi in a Shizuoka tea house in March of 1545, shortly before his death, having set out from Kyoto to bathe in the Shizuoka hot springs. He describes the journey through a country at war with itself in his travel diary, Togoku Kiko, account of a journey to the eastern provinces, and includes a poem about the mochi. With my years mounting, I'd not thought to eat this food again, but such is the life I've been allotted, warabi mochi. The verse plays on a 12th century poem by Saigyo, also written on a journey through Shizuoka, translated here by Laurel Rasplica Rod. With my years mounting, I'd not thought to pass this way again, but such is the life I've been allotted, middle mountain of the night. So I just love that because here's this priest from the 16th century, like doing this totally irreverent um, takeoff on an even more ancient poem. Um, he's like, this is a deep poem about life and I'm going to make it about Warabimachi. Um, so that's, yeah, it, it was fun to include that in the book. Winifred, thank you so much. I think that is a great place to bring this to a close. Listeners, we have been talking with Winifred Bird, author of Eating Wild Japan, tracking the culture of foraged foods with a guide to plants and recipes. It has been such a pleasure talking about food and poetry and history and culture with you, Winifred. Thank you for joining us today. Listeners, if you would like to order your own copy of Eating Wild Japan, we will have full details available on our new website, seasonbyseason.org. Winifred, do you have any final thoughts for us? I guess I would just say that we're all kind of aware of the Japanese appreciation for fleeting things and evanescence. Um, cherry blossoms being the quintessential example of that. So I would say that sansai are really like the edible version of cherry blossoms in that they symbolize a very specific moment in the yearly cycle that comes and then fades away very quickly um, because so many of these plants, um, or at least the edible part of the plant, the delicious part of the plant at its peak, is really only in season for such a, a short period of time. So you have to watch nature very carefully to be able to capture that moment. 
and and be fully present in your place um, and, and know know the place that you inhabit and then experience it and then let it go and it goes beyond just looking at it like you do with cherry blossoms in this case you're taking it into your body you're eating it so it's an even more kind of personal relationship to the seasons um, that I hope listeners are able to experience for themselves. Thank you so much for joining us, Winifred, and encouraging us to look closer at nature. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. After an afternoon walk admiring the Sansai, I have to admit, I find myself getting quite drowsy in springtime. Have you ever experienced this, Alexis? <laughs> I get drowsy and indulge in naps in every season. In winter, I feel like a bear hibernating. In summer, I take a page out of my Italian heritage and enjoy a siesta from time to time. In autumn, they are a cozy indulgence where I feel like I'm preparing my body for winter. And spring? Well, spring is asleep, which revels in the sense that the sun is getting stronger and life is getting better and better with each day. <laughs> A nap for all seasons, hmm? Well, I looked into it, you know, as this is listed as a kigo, or seasonal word in the Saijiki, or Japanese seasonal almanac. In it, they included spring sleep, spring naps, and of course, spring dreams. It's not just the allergy medication talking. Sleepiness in spring seems to be a phenomenon the world over. The Germans call it Freuersmüdigkeit, or spring fatigue. It's characterized by low energy and weariness. It's not an illness per se, but more influenced by the change of season. Interesting. The Germans have some great words, don't they? Remember Fernwe, the desire for far off places? We talked about it in our White Dew episode. But there's something to being tired connected to the change of seasons, especially this transition from winter to spring. It seems like all of a sudden everything is happening after the relative calm of January, February, and March. Some claim that the body is readjusting to the new season, and that puts added stress on the body. Others say it's the change in weather or the change of diet that inevitably begins to shift around this time of year. Either way, I'm sure our listeners may have enjoyed a dozing sunny spring day recently. If not, why not give a spring nap a try? Here is a poem for inspiration. If I could patch a coverlet from pieces of the spring, what dreams a happy child would have beneath so fair a thing? A center of the dear blue sky, a bordering of green, with patches of the yellow sun all checkered in between. Bright ribbons of the silky grass laced prettily across with satin of new little leaves and velvet of the moss. In every corner, violets, half hidden from view, with many flowered squares betwixt of pinky tints and blue, embroideries of little vines and spiderwebs of lace. With gold thread, I would sew the seams and needles of the pine. Oh, 
Never a child in all the world would have a quilt like mine. What a cozy poem. Naps are great, but after resting up, I feel ready for another important springtime activity. It's time to head to the garden, I think. As Margaret Atwood said, in the spring, at the end of the day, you should smell like dirt. Ah, uh, there really is nothing like springtime in a garden. The scent of the earth in the warm sun, among all the life just waiting to burst forth from the soil, really makes you feel alive. It's a time for planting, and it's also a time for blossoms. We've talked about blossoming trees before. In spring, it's a very fruitful topic after all. And adding its own fragrance to the air, one tree that bursts into beautiful bloom in April and May is the flowering dogwood. What a gorgeous tree. To quote George Marion McClellan, High o'er all the early floral train, where softness all the arching sky resumes, the dogwood dancing to the wind's refrain, in stainless glory spreads its snowy blooms. How lovely. And you know, that early floral train of nature is all around us at this time. Speaking of flowering trees, you know, there's one Kigo or seasonal word that I find particularly interesting for this season. Sakura Shibefuru. In our clear and bright episode, we discussed sakura, or cherry blossoms, and their importance in Japanese culture. The Kigo, sakura shibefuru, refers to these blossoms in a more melancholy light. This phrase means the time of season when the flowering season is over and people have lost interest in cherry blossoms. Even though the season for cherry blossoms has ended, there are plenty of lovely flowers ready for their time in the sun. This is reflected in a quote from a classic work of Japanese literature, The Tale of Genji. There is much to be said for cherry blossoms, but they seem so flighty. They are so quick to run off and leave you. And then, just when your regrets are the strongest, the wisteria comes into bloom, and it blooms on into the summer. There is nothing quite like it. Even the color is somehow companionable and inviting. Ah, the noble wisteria. This is another well-loved flower in Japanese culture. The twining vines of the wisteria plant are particularly attractive with their lilac-colored flowers cascading down from trellises. In late spring, these waves of wisteria can make for a dramatic sight. In the Victorian language of flowers, wisteria meant a clinging love. After all, their clinging vines are particularly strong and grow voraciously. While beautiful, wisteria can be a powerful and even destructive plant. Their fast-growing vines have been known to find their way into cracks and crevices to grow into houses. Wisteria are also quite toxic to human and animals, so it may be best to enjoy their spectacular drooping clusters from afar. Fortunately, there are many gardens and parks where visitors can do just that. Here are a couple of haiku that feature the strikingly lovely wisteria. Wisteria trellis. Behind it, in the light, wildflowers. Wisteria plumes sweep the earth, and soon the rains will fall.
The magnificent blooms of the dogwood and wisteria spread color and light onto our springtime scenery. As Arthur Wellington Braley wrote, April comes as a window opened, admitting sunlight and a patch of blue sky. Then May bursts, the rainbow of the months, sent as a sign, a promise of fruition. May is the morning of the year. That's an invigorating thought. Are you ready to wake up and face the day? Yes, and what better way to celebrate spring, nature, and hope for the future than by planting a tree? Come, let us plant a tree, tenderly, lovingly, some heart to cheer. Long may its branches sway, shelter sweet birds away. Long may its blossoms say, springtide is here. Here in the United States, National Arbor Day is celebrated on the last Friday in April. This year, 2021, that's Friday, April 30th. Arbor Day is a day for planting trees and celebrating nature. The first American Arbor Day was held in Nebraska in the April of 1872. Newspaper editor Julius Sterling Morton spread the idea of a tree planting holiday and proposed the idea to the State Board of Agriculture. On that first Arbor Day, it is estimated that more than one million trees were planted in Nebraska by individuals and civic groups alike. Since then, the tree planting holiday has taken off and is now celebrated by communities around the world. Though dates for Arbor Day may differ internationally, it usually takes place in spring or to coincide with the local area's best planting times. Alaskans celebrate Arbor Day on the third Monday of May, while in Hawaii, Arbor Day is celebrated in November. Whenever it's celebrated, it's a time for honoring trees as a source of joy and renewal. Trees are one of our most important natural resources, and by planting trees, we are promoting not only our own well-being, but that of future generations. As J. Sterling Morton said, other holidays repose upon the past. Arbor Day proposes for the future. Listeners, if you'd like to commemorate Arbor Day by planting a tree of your own, there are some great resources available at the Arbor Day Foundation at arborday.org. If you do plant a tree, we'd love to hear about it. Feel free to share your story on our Facebook page, Season by Season Podcast. In the meantime, let's celebrate trees and Arbor Day with a poem. On Arbor Day, we think of birds and greening trees, of meadowlands and humming bees, of orchards far from crowded town, of heights where streams go tumbling down, wee mountain rills that sing and play on Arbor Day, of how the treetops coax the rain from flying clouds till hill and plain are clean and fresh from sea to sea. We plant a seed, a tiny tree, wakes up and throws aside the clod and stretches for the climb toward God. We sing a song for the joy of May on Arbor Day. Returning briefly back to the namesake of this mini-season, the great haiku poet Yosa Busan wrote the following haiku. 
In the spring rain, the pond and river have become one. I really think this poem reflects this mini-season, grain rain, wet, soggy, and full of life. This brings to mind all the early stages of life around us, and one creature that particularly comes to mind are frogs. And in these mid-spring and summer days, it certainly seems the season of the tadpole. You say tadpole, I say pollywog. Let's call the whole thing off. I say otamajakushi, and you say penbol. Let's call the whole thing off. You say viluwiluwi, and I say vagivi. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> Whether English, Japanese, Welsh, Swahili, or Georgian, somehow the word for polywogs is always so cute. Here's a cute poem for our spherical harbinger of summer. Oh, the polywog is woggling in his pleasant native bog, with his beady eyes a-goggling through the underwater fog, and his busy tail a-joggling, and his eager head a-gog. Just a happy little frogling who is bound to be a frog. Tadpoles have a sense of playful life and energy to them, and they really are one of the symbols to the warming days of late spring and early summer. I have fond memories of a deep and still spot in the creek near my house where the tadpoles would come to enjoy the sunny, warm waters. Another wonderful childhood memory was on a glorious spring morning with a crown of flowers on my head and ribbons of the school maple fluttering in the breeze. Falling within the mini-season of grain rain is what was once considered one of the most important and special days of the year, at least in European societies, May Day. May Day is an ancient holiday celebrating spring that dates back to Roman times and Floralia, the festival of Flora, the goddess of flowers. Throughout the centuries, it spread widely in Europe. I feel like May Day is sort of the other side of the coin to Christmas. Just as the Christmas holiday has a variety of traditions the world over, so too does May Day. The Oxford Companion of the Year states that May Day is rich in customs, perhaps more so than any other day of the year. And just like Christmas, the day before May Day is also quite special and mysterious. May Eve, also known as Walpurgisnacht, was a time of mischief. Witches flew through the night, billy goats danced, and the devil reigned over the night until midnight, when the Queen of May appeared to drive away the devil and the remains of winter. In part one of Goethe's Faust, Faust and Mephistopheles are guided by Will of the Wisps to watch a play called Walpurgisch Natum oder Umberons und Titania's Golden Hochzeit, translated as Walpurgis Night's Dream or The Golden Wedding of Oberon and Titania. The darker side of the fairy world is alive and well on this evening. Closely linked to the traditions of May Day is the Celtic celebration of Beltane. Many celebrations of what is known as the Wheel of the Year fall during the beginning and end of the months, so we will have plenty of opportunity to explore them throughout the seasons this year. While May Day may be about the daytime, Beltane is a bit more associated with the night. Beltane is a fire festival a word originating from the Celtic god Bel, meaning the bright one, and the Gaelic word Tain, meaning fire. 
Together, they make bright fire or goodly fire. And traditionally, bonfires were lit to honor the sun. And just like many holidays that we have explored so far, nature plays a role in keeping out the unwanted spirits and welcoming the good. On May Day, greenery such as birch, mountain ash, or elder leaves was affixed to doors and windows for good luck and safety on this night. Hawthorn is also especially important for both May Day and Beltane, and it blossoms in May. The tree is associated with sexuality and fertility and is the classic flower to decorate the iconic May maypole with, as well as to decorate the home. No matter the holiday, the gentle days of the beginning of May are characterized by flowers, flowers, flowers. May is pretty. May is mild. Dances like a happy child. Sing out, Robin, spring out flowers. April went with all her showers. And the world is green again. Come out, children, to the glen, to the meadows, to the wood. For the earth is clean and good. And the sky is clear and blue. And bright May is calling you. May is pretty. May is mild. Dances like a happy child. On a blessed holiday, come out, children, join the play. May Day is an important holiday in European cultures because it symbolizes the beginning of the warmest, most pleasant time of the year. There's a special day on the Japanese calendar that serves the same purpose too, Hachiju Hachiya, or 88th night. This refers to the 88th night after Rishun, which is, as regular listeners will remember, the beginning of spring in the Japanese almanac. On the modern calendar, the 88th night usually falls around May 2nd. After this date, frost is almost always certain not to appear, except around the feast day of the Ice Saints. Be sure to check out episode 2 for more information on those. But generally speaking, May 2nd is an especially important day for farmers. Rice farmers begin planting seeds in rice beds, and tea growers would wait to harvest their tea leaves on this date or after, a tradition that is still practiced to this day. Even while yawning, she keeps the tune tea picking. Hmm. It sounds like the tea harvester in that haiku is feeling some of that spring fatigue, doesn't it? Well, tea picking is hard work, but it's important work, too. The two or three weeks following the 88th night is considered the best time of year to harvest tea, and the tea leaves harvested during this time are especially prized as high-quality green tea, and even believed to promote long life. Spring harvested tea is particularly rich in amino acids, so maybe there's some truth to that. There's a custom in southern China, too, of drinking tea during this grain rain solar term to support health. You know, it's interesting you mention health. During this time of year, there's something in the air, isn't there? And I'm not talking about allergies. Mm, I think I know what you mean. Could you be referring to spring fever? When a feller feels a longing from the meadow in his breast, when the robins north are thronging, where they haste to build their nest, when the frogs peep in the puddle, where I love to hear them sing, 
then my brain is in a muddle, for I know it's really spring. When the double windows smother us until we want more air. When a protest comes and mother can't endure them longer there. When we ope the cellar shutters, kitchen doors are on the swing. Clean the cisterns, fix the gutters. Then I know it's truly spring. I don't want to worry you, Kit, but poetry aside, what we call spring fever, it's a real phenomenon. To quote an article by Christy Nicholson, published in Scientific American, there's an illness that has been documented by poets for centuries. Its symptoms include a flushed face, increased heart rate, appetite loss, restlessness, and daydreaming. It's spring fever, that wonderfully amorphous disease we all recognize come April and May. Oh, I absolutely know it's real. This is something I've experienced myself. Anecdotal evidence aside, there truly has been quite a bit of research done on how seasonal changes affect our mood and behavior. Just as seasonal affective disorder can affect our moods in winter, so too does it seem that there is evidence that a real change occurs in us biologically in the spring. As you mentioned when discussing spring fatigue, our bodies are going through changes right along with the seasons. This can contribute to us feeling tired or just distracted and lovesick. Now that you mention it, what we call spring fever could possibly be related to a documented phenomenon in Japan, too. What's called gogetsubyo, or May sickness. Gogetsubyo refers specifically to a gloomy feeling of stress that occurs in May. After graduating in early spring, it seems like May could be a stressful time for new graduates looking for work or for new high school students. Not only that, but there's a week of holidays in early May, and some people may not be quite ready to return from vacation. Actually, a lot of folks call in sick around this time. I guess I recognize that feeling too. After a long vacation week, it can be hard to return to the daily grind. And in Japan, Golden Week is one of the vacation weeks of the year. Ah yes, Golden Week, that delightful cluster of holidays at the end of April and beginning of May that signified the most popular vacation and travel within Japan. Starting on the 29th of April, Golden Week begins with Showa Day, the day honoring the birthday of the former Emperor Showa. May 3rd is Constitution Memorial Day, the day the present constitution came into effect. May 4th is Greenery Day, and May 5th is Children's Day, Kodomo no Hi. Since there are so many national holidays falling during this time, many workers are given the entire week off. It seems the phrase Golden Week was first used by the film industry in the 1940s to encourage vacationers to take advantage of the golden opportunity to go see a film during their time off. The phrase has stuck, and this week of holidays is still called Golden Week. And after all, nothing shines on a calendar quite like a week of days off. Golden Week arrives at one of the most pleasant times of year in Japan. Neither the rainy season nor the hot, muggy weather of summer has started yet, so it is a perfect time to travel. Though each specific holiday in Golden Week commemorates something unique, the most enduring celebration is probably that of Children's Day, which occurs on May 5th. We discussed Children's Day in our beginning of summer episode in 2020. The day of carp streamers and iris baths falls on the cusps of these two seasons. It's a nice day to revisit. I remembered not to eat the oak leaf decorating the kashiwa mochi. But there's another holiday during Golden Week I'd like to talk about. Greenery Day. 
or Midori no Hi, which falls on May 4th. I have to admit, even though I have experienced three golden weeks living in Japan, I really only learned about Greenery Day very recently. I thought it sounded a bit like Arbor Day, that is, a day for celebrating nature. Yes, that's basically true. Greenery Day is celebrated with tree plantings and other events held around the country designed to bring people closer to nature. After the Emperor Showa passed away in 1989, Greenery Day was a day in his honor without directly mentioning his name, acknowledging his great love for plants. Officially, it's a day to commune with the earth. Wisteria dangles to its heart's content. Fresh green leaves. Wind on the greenery, coming to see my house, the morning sun. It's interesting how many nature-based holidays we have in springtime. Of course, it's only natural that we appreciate the earth in all its springtime glory, and acknowledge that, ideally, appreciating the earth is something we do whatever the season. There is more that we, as humans, can do to protect this planet that we all share. Earth Day is always celebrated on April 22nd, close to Arbor Day, but a distinct holiday in its own right. Their goals are similar, appreciating the earth we have, and taking action that will improve our environment for the future. Earth Day was started in 1970 as a grassroots demonstration to increase awareness of environmental problems. Over the years, it has grown into a global movement that has shaped environmental activism in communities around the world. This year, 2021, Earth Day marks its 51st anniversary. I would say that the mission of Earth Day is ambitious, to save the Earth. But there are so many things that we can do on Earth Day and every day to help care for nature and the environment around us. Earth Day, like Arbor Day, is a popular time for communities to gather to plant trees and other plants. It's also a great day to clean up litter, and there are many organized cleanup events across many countries. And you know, it's not just about taking care of the environment because it's important. If you've ever attended a litter cleanup event, I think you'll understand that it just feels good to do too. It especially feels good to be outside during the lush green days of spring. That too. Litter cleanup may seem like a daunting task at first, but as you go, it gets easier, and a camaraderie develops with those who are cleaning with you. It's so deeply satisfying to see your local park or beach looking pristine and tidy. And you are helping others too. It is a great feeling to take pride in your nature spaces and see that you can make a difference there. Importantly, Earth Day is also a day to learn more about the problems affecting the Earth and what you can do to help. You might be surprised to learn how much you can do, even from your own backyard. Ultimately, the future of the Earth is in our hands. Let's celebrate Earth Day by respecting and appreciating our natural world. We have not heard the music of the spheres, the song of star to star. But there are sounds more deep than human joy and human tears that nature uses in her common rounds. The fall of streams, the cry of winds that strain the oak, 
the roaring of the sea's surge, might of thunder breaking afar off, or rain that falls by minutes in the summer night. These are the voices of Earth's secret soul, uttering the mystery from which she came. To him who hears them, grief beyond control, or joy inscrutable without a name, wakes in his heart thoughts bedded there, impearled before the birth and making of the world. for joining us as we explored the abundance of the grain rain season, a season of both freshness and ripeness, a branch between April and May. This season, some of the kigo or seasonal words we explored were April showers, sansai, spring fatigue, spring naps, flowering dogwood, wisteria, tadpoles, arbor day, may day, beltane, hachiju hachiya, 88th night, spring tea picking, Golden Week, Greenery Day, and Earth Day. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini-season? Email your Kigo to our brand new email address, seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. And speaking of social media and the World Wide Web, we have a new website, seasonbyseason.org, a special permanent seasonal home for this podcast please be sure to check it out. If you are subscribed to us on Apple Music, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., your service should not be interrupted. We hope. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Elizabeth Ellen Long, Lucy Larkham, Abby Farwell Brown, Du Fu, George Marion McClellan, Isa Shiki, Annette Wine, Arthur Guterman, Charles Andrews Heath, and Archibald Lampman. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or used with permission from their creators. For more information on the poets, the poetry, as well as the musicians and artists featured in our episode, please visit seasonbyseason.org. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Porfirio Figueroa, Andrew Prosser, Catherine Piper, Zachary Piper, Vicky Kagawan, Lynn Hickman, Bernabe Ted Castalis, Carl Smith, Jason Berner, and Nikki. We would like to extend a special thanks once again to our special guest, Winifred Bird, for joining us in discussing her book, Eating Wild Japan. You can find out more about Winifred on her social media, Winnie Bird Words, on Instagram. And if you are interested in ordering the book, we highly recommend ordering it from bookshop.org. If you order it from there, you can send in your proof of purchase to receive a complimentary book plate illustrated by Julie Ditto. We'll be sure to include all this information on seasonbyseason.org, so please pay our website a visit. And listeners, please don't worry. Hiro's Corner, with our dear friend Hiro Akisato and superb narrator Ed von Adderkass, will be back again next episode. Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, It's spring again. The earth is like a child that knows poems by heart. We hope you'll keep your favorite poem close to your heart this springtime. And 
whether this spring finds you planting a tree or napping under one, we wish you all the best hope and joy that comes from participating in nature's rebirth. Join us again for our next episode when we'll explore the season of Shoman, or the season when the weather becomes fine and everything starts to go well, which we'll be calling Fine Weather. See you in another season.